This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. I'm very excited to introduce Eve Ensler as well as her newest book, The Apology. I toyed with the ideas like, does Eve Ensler really need an introduction? I mean, I'm happy to do it. Uh, a Tony Award-winning playwright, author, performer, and activist. Eve uh, is, of course, the best-selling author of The Vagina Monologues, which has gone on to be translated in 48 languages and performed in over 140 countries. She's the author of yeah, author of uh, New York Times bestseller, I Am an Emotional Creature. She's also the founder of V-Day, the global activist movement to end violence against women and girls, and One Billion Rising, the largest global mass action to end gender violence in over 200 countries. In her latest book, Eve imagines and creates an apology from her father, who has long since died, who sexually and physically abused her. And as Ron Charles of the Washington Post wrote, the apology contains the words that Ensler needed to hear her father say, it's a slim book of unbearable heft. Additionally, today's presentation will feature samples from the audible version of the book read by Eduardo Ballerini. I want to thank Eve so much for being willing to share her story, for crafting this experience, for all the work that she's done. I'm going to get off the stage now, so without further ado, please help me welcoming Eve Ensler to Politics and Press. Thank you. Thank you so much for that introduction. How much do we love this bookstore? Oh my God. It's one of my favorite places in the whole world, so I'm thrilled to be back here. And thank you all so much for coming out tonight to hear about the book. I think I'm just going to be begin by saying um, this book is an offering. It's not a prescription. It's not a have to. It's not a must do. I think every survivor of violence of any kind knows their own journey and their own process and when they need to do what they need to do. So if this is something that works for you, great. If it's something you're not ready for, great. If it's something you never want to do, that's great too. And I also want to say when I talk about women or I use the word women, and I'm talking about all women, trans women, cis women, by women, anybody living and choosing to live as a woman. So I'm going to get that out of the way at the beginning so we don't have confusion later. Um, I think what I want to do at the start is just play you a little bit. um, Do you have, I want to just, introduction. Um, um, I've vowed that I'm never going to read from this book, that only men will read it. Um, And a very wonderful man named Eduardo Bellarini um, did the audio of it. And Um, I'm going to play a little bit of that audio in a second, but before I do, I'm just going to set it up a little. I think um, for most of my life, um, I've been waiting for an apology from my father. I was sexually abused when I was five and went on until I was 10. And then my father, after uh, it kind of um, was forced to stop um, through circumstances that I'll explain later, he then went on to kind of destroy the evidence and destroy me who had pushed him away. And from that point on, until I left home, he physically battered me on a regular basis, almost murdering me twice. And I think um, as a child, I was always writing apology letters. And I look back on that and I see now, one was that I was always made to feel so bad and terrible and that I was a sorry person and I was sorry. I was just sorry. And I said, I'm sorry so much. My friends were like, if you say it again, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. But I also think there was part of me that was trying to get my father to see that I could make an apology and maybe he could make one too. And that if I did it, he'd be inspired to do it. So I waited 31 years for my father, uh, waited my whole lifetime for my father to apologize. And then he died. And I think for the 31 years since he's not been here, I've still been waiting for an apology because we never stop waiting for that apology. And then 
that's one piece of why I wrote this book. The other piece is that I've been working for over 21 years now in the movement B-Day to end violence against women and girls and working in One Billion Rising and traveling to 70 you know, countries on this planet, hearing the stories of women from Congo to Haiti to Afghanistan to Kosovo to Bosnia and seeing how many women on this planet have been waiting for an apology. And then with the recent iteration of Me Too, so many women, you know, coming out after, you know, we've had a 70-year-old movement to end violence against women and now escalated with Me Too. We've broken the silence. We've told our stories. We've called men out. We've built shelters. We've created hotlines. But I realized in all that time, oh, you can't hear it? Okay. Is this better? I realized in all that time, did you hear any of what I've said? Okay. <laughs> that would be really sad. Um, I realized in all that time, I have never heard a man make a public, thorough, authentic apology for sexual or, uh, or, or any kind of violence. And it suddenly struck me, is it possible that in 16,000 years of patriarchy, we have never heard a man make a public apology? So I decided I was going to write one. And I was going to write my father's apology. And I was going to write the things and the words and say all the things to myself that I needed to say. And I'm just going to read you the introduction, which is in my voice. And the rest of the book is in my father's voice. I am done waiting. My father is long dead. He will never say the words to me. He will not make the apology. So it must be imagined, for it is in our imagination that we dream across boundaries, deepen the narrative, and design alternative outcomes. This letter is an invocation, a calling up. I've tried to allow my father to speak to me as he would speak. Although I have written the words I needed my father to say to me, I had to make space for him to come through me. There is so much about him, his history, that he never shared with me. So I had to conjure much of that as well. This letter is my attempt to endow my father with the will and the words to cross the boundaries, the border, and speak the language of apology so that I can finally be free. And with that, I want to just play a few excerpts from the book. They're kind of scattered excerpts just to give you a feeling of it so we can hear the audio. How very strange to be writing you. Am I writing to you from the grave, or the past, or the future? Am I writing as you, or as you would like me to be, or as I really am beneath my own limited understanding? And does it matter? Am I writing in a language I never spoke or understood, which you have created inside both of our minds to bridge the gaps, the failures to connect? Maybe I am writing as I truly am as you have freed me by your witness. Or I'm not writing this at all, but simply being used as a vehicle to fulfill your own needs and version of things. You always wrote me letters. I found that peculiar and strangely moving. We lived in the same house, but you were writing to me, your little girl handwriting attempting straight lines but wandering all over the page. It was as if you were trying to make contact with some aspect of me, a part you could not find in the heated moments of our conflict, as if you were trying through poetry to appeal to a secret self that I had once made available to you. 
Usually you wrote apology letters. So fitting that you would now want an apology letter from me. You were always apologizing, begging for forgiveness. I had reduced you to a daily degrading mantra of, I'm sorry. This apology required time. It could not be rushed. Fortunately, I have had practice here endlessly reliving and rehashing my crimes, mentally reenacting the details. I know you have said that an apology must be thorough and can only be trusted in its veracity and dedication to details. I have done my best. I have followed your very strict guidelines. Recognize what I have done as a crime. Face how deeply my actions and violations have impacted and devastated you. See you as a human being. Attempt to experience or feel what it felt like inside you. Feel profound remorse and regret over my actions. And finally, take responsibility for my actions by doing extensive work to understand what made me do what I did. I will need to go back in this letter to locate the roots of my behavior. I will be as honest as a formerly disingenuous person can be. I will attempt to proceed with neither defensiveness nor self-pity, as I understand neither will further clarify nor resolve. I would find myself in your room at some twilight hour. I only felt alive between the daylight and darkness, in that crepuscular realm where dream and memory are indecipherable. That's how I controlled you. Those aphoric hours where others in the house were lost in sleep and you were in a trance, separated from your body. I would find myself sitting on your bed, somehow carried there by shadow men. You would pretend to be asleep, as if what was happening was not happening. You desperately wanted it and me to go away. I didn't go away. I never spoke, never uttered a sound. The silence was my power. Words would break the spell, make it real and ugly and what it was. Eve, let me say these words. I am sorry. I am sorry. Let me sit here at the final hour. Let me get it right this time. Let me be staggered by your tenderness. Let me risk fragility. Let me be rendered vulnerable. Let me be lost. Let me be still. Let me not occupy or oppress. Let me not conquer or destroy. Let me bathe in the rapture. Let me be the father. Let me be the father who mirrors your kind-heartedness back to you. Let me lay no claims. Let me bear witness and not invade. Eve... I free you from the covenant. I revoke the lie. I lift the curse. Old man, be gone. So those are a few little pieces of the book. And um, so every time I hear a man read it, you know, I'm always equally startled. Um, as I said, my early years were brutal and full of terror and pain. My father sexually abused me, and after he stopped, he needed to erase everything he had already destroyed, so he physically and emotionally battered me, almost murdering me until I left home. And I think survivors here know that this abuse altered the constitutional makeup of my entire being. 
It filled my cells and blood and body with terror, worry, guilt, and dread that would in my teenage years and on until my 60s develop into all-encompassing self-hatred and anxiety. The abuse created infections in my body and seriously compromised my immune system. In my 50s, I would get stage 3 slash 4 uterine cancer. The abuse froze me and made it almost impossible to concentrate or think. It had a terrible impact on my ability to study and learn. This reconfirmed, of course, my father's idea of me as a stupid person. The abuse made intimacy claustrophobic, made love foreign, made safety a pipe dream, and drew me constantly to dangerous situations and people in an attempt to master my past and my fear. It led me to addiction, alcohol, drugs, sex, And I tell you all this not for your self-pity or sorrow. I tell you because when we talk about violence against women, we are using all these abstract terms like gender violence and domestic violence, but we don't realize the specific detailed ways it impacts our lives and how many years, how much time it takes to rise from the ashes. I've been blessed and I was blessed when I was years to get waitressing jobs um, and I I made enough money to survive and then doubly blessed that I made my way as a writer so I could afford to pay for the resources, therapy, and all the things I have tried in my life to lift the lid of that very dark period of my life. I know others in this country are not so fortunate. I was just in Philadelphia last night walking the streets, and there were so many mentally ill people on the streets, so many in this country who we just exile and leave after they've suffered various forms of trauma. I I try to imagine um, what we would be like um, if 70% of the money we spend in this country on bombs and killing and war, we would redirect into a national trauma fund so that all those who are suffering from some kind of trauma, whether it be physical or sexual, ancestral, racial trauma, gender violence, could have the means and resources and love and attention to recover. It would be our national priority alongside the Green New Deal. Can you imagine the outcome of a country that treated the trauma of its citizens rather than punishing them for being wounded or poor or mentally ill or homeless or immigrants or broke or deprived or angry or violent? (laughs) But anyway, as I said, I have spent my life climbing out of the hole of this betrayal and terror, finding a way back into my body. I've done breath work and massage, dance therapy, group therapy, incest therapy, anger therapy, and I have written books and plays and articles, and I've helped start movements to end violence against women and travel the world to meet women in refugee camps, war zones, shelters, homeless centers, detention centers, and prisons. I confronted my mother for not protecting me, and through time and careful work, we made peace before she died. But my father died 31 years ago, And for the years before he died and after, as I told you, I've been waiting for a reckoning for him to be accountable. So I wrote this book. And I have to tell you, writing this book was one of the most painful, revelatory, and liberating things I've ever done. So many of us have been waiting for so long to hear the words, to feel the words, to receive the apology. And it's not just the acknowledgement of the offense we crave, it's the consciousness and transformation of the perpetrator. It's the understanding. It's the detailed inquiry of the perpetrator into the whys and whats and hows. It's his complete willingness to probe his soul, wrestle down the demons and guilt that arise and the self-loathing that come with awareness. The words are the easy part. It's the authenticity attached to the claim. It's the sweating of his hands, the impossibility of speech, the recognition of the horror, his clear understanding of the impact and longevity of his cruelty. 
It isn't just groveling or shame I hungered for, although both would have been appropriate. It was certainly not self-emulation or self-pity, as both would be a demand on my heart and sympathy. And that was not a moment for my father. It was a moment for me. This was the moment where he would give himself to a reckoning without reservation, without justification. The polity required utter attention, devotion, and clarity derived from utter self-interrogation. It could not be faked. It could not be mimed. And it required time. It could not be rushed. My father, the one imagined, the one inside me, had to spend days reliving his crying, mentally reenacting the details, feeling what it must have been like inside his daughter, me, who he abused. He had to strip away the hardness which prevented him from empathy, the indifference that rejected responsibility, rejected even the notion of the apology itself. I asked him to remember, remember my cries and my pleading, and to look back and see what my face actually looked like when he demeaned me or insulted me or grabbed me or beat me or raped me. I asked him to meditate and try to feel and experience what it was like inside my little body as I experienced the terror, rage, claustrophobia, heartbreak, confusion, and betrayal. It had to be thorough. The liberation, and I want to say this about apologies, the liberation is in the details for both the perpetrator and the victim. I travel the world and I've asked many women what justice would look like after they've been sexually abused or battered or incested or harassed. And some rightfully demand punishment, prison time for their perpetrators, public exposure, loss of jobs, end of careers. Some simply want their perpetrators to disappear forever. But most women I've spoken to say that in order to heal, in order to move on, what they want and need is for their perpetrator to acknowledge the truth of what he has done. They want their perpetrator to recognize them as a full, real human being, to acknowledge the harm he has caused, and to feel remorse and heartbreak. They need to see their perpetrator has taken responsibility for his actions and done extensive work to understand what made him commit this violence. They need to know the depth of his reckoning will prevent him from ever doing something like this again. So I think in writing this book, I learned what an apology is. And I want to say, um, we teach children how to pray. We teach them devotion of prayer and the attention required and the, the humbling and the petition of prayer. But we don't teach children how to apologize because apology is a practice. It's actually a journey. It's an extensive um, experience and, 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 and it requires a lot of components. And I want to say that humbling is a big part of it. It's a loss of grandiosity and superiority. It's an admission of wrongdoing. It's a surrender. It's an equalizer. It's making true connection. I think an apology is the anecdote to the convenient and diabolical amnesia which our families and our country are rife with. And I think we only have to look to our history where this, the story of this country b began, robbing it from the indigenous, killing them, raping them, seizing their lands, moving on to the story of African Americans and 400 years of slavery, and then Jim Crow, and then mass incarceration. We only have to look at all the stories we don't remember and all the apologies we haven't made culturally, politically, but in our families, we do the same thing. Right in front of us, people are doing things that we're denying as they're occurring. We're not remembering what happened to our brother or our sister or ourself. And I think one of the great things about an apology it is the antidote to amnesia. It's a remembering, a public acknowledgement that what occurred really did occur. The act of it acknowledges the past and brings us into the present. 
Of course, the powerful have been very well trained never to apology, apologize. We only have to look at our current predator in chief to understand that. They make themselves the victims. That's what my father did. Even as he whipped me and threw me against walls, he was the victim, reminding me always how it hurt him more than it hurt me, how I was the reason he had to behave like this. I made him do it. He had no choice. So we wait for the apology, millions of us suspended in a realm neither past nor present. True, some who have been accused recently have lost jobs and careers and reputations. It seems rather momentary, particularly for white men. Some have gone to prison, but even when they come forward to describe what they have learned, and I know you've all read a few of these articles, uh, they don't say the words. They don't acknowledge the specificity of their crimes. They don't trace the history of their own stories or development of distortions in their own psyches and, and uh, that would at least attempt to make sense of their brutality. They don't investigate the system of patriarchy and privilege that allowed and encouraged and gave them cover for this violence. They don't wrestle down their demons and expose vulnerability. Instead, when called out, they often speak of their own pain and loss and misfortune steeped in self-pity. I have read no words of any man accused of sexual abuse who has taken the painstaking steps to self-revelation, who has done the treacherous work of owning his actions, searching his history to trace the seeds and reasons for his crime, in facing his violence, in speaking the words. And I do not know if it is simply ignorance or inability or shame or male entitlement or refusal or arrogance or that men are simply unable to face so much pain or that they have been so trained to hold on to their pride and power to the final hour. My father says something very chilling in the book. He told me that he says, one, um, he said, my father said that for a man to apologize is to become a traitor to all men. And that once one man admits he was wrong and knew he was wrong, the whole story begins to collapse. Maybe um, men believe that this one apology will bring the whole world crashing down around them, even though in some cases it's already crashed. Maybe it's the misstep that would permanently exile them from the boys club to which their allegiance is firm and implicit. But to make the apology would show weakness, would open a floodgate to a future where the identity of men would be totally in question, so we actually need the brave men to come forward to be the truth tellers, the traitors. I'm encouraging all men to be gender traitors. I'm sure then others will begin to follow suit. And I have to say, since um, the book has come out and, and bef right, right before, I am so moved to see how many men have been inviting me to come on their shows or to interview me and talk about this book. And it's made me aware what I suspected, that men are looking for a way to begin to talk about where they are and what's happening and how they begin a process of reconciliation and, and reckoning and accountability. It's a system that has to change, the fundamental beliefs, the values, the central idea. The question is, how do we address patriarchy, the paradigm that underlines all this violence? We have to get under the story in order to uproot it rather than continuing to ram up against it. We have to offer a doorway rather than a locked cell. We have to move from humiliation to revelation, from curtailing behavior to changing it, from containing perpetrators to calling them to reckoning. And the truth is the system of patriarchy is as poisonous to the winners as it is to the losers, as devastating to the men who are severed from their hearts and tenderness as it is to the women who have suffered terrible violence as a result of the separation. Women spend their time recovering from sexual violence, and men spend their lives covering for it. 
and both these things empty and take our lives. The truest healing comes for the victim and perpetrator at once because both are forever caught inside the same story. Punishment in itself cannot offer this healing. And I just want to say something about punishment. We live in such a punishing, punishing culture. It is so punitive, America. Um, we, we have more people incarcerated in this country than any place in the world. We take people who have suffered some of the worst economic um, injustices and racial injustices and, and violences in families and we punish them. We punish them. We punish each other on social media. It's all about got you. I finally found out who you really are. Got you, punished, dead, right? I am a person who was punished every day of my life. And I'm here to tell you, punishment is not something that educates people. It's not something that transforms people. It frightens people. It hardens people. It embitters people. And it makes people more violent. Many men are afraid and confused now. They don't know how to act. And of course, having a, a new awareness is a great thing. But being on guard does not necessarily mean being aware of the issues does not assure being educated or taking responsibility or exploring your inner depths to see where you are sexist or culpable or how your past actions have hurt someone and where you need to make repairs. Being on guard means being sure you don't screw up, make a mistake or get caught. It's a punishment response. You're in fear, on hold and suspended. It's a state of mind in which you are not open or vulnerable and where you cannot learn or change. I believe the deeper process that is being called for now, and I really feel this, we are moving into a time, in spite of what appears to be looking around us with this particular administration, we are moving into a time of reckoning. Because an apology is an excavation. It insists that the perpetrator go beneath the surface, be willing to mine the layers of truth and guilt hidden beneath each new revelation. Apology is both a method and a practice. The act itself holds the possibility of transformation and liberation. And I, I just want to talk about how many women on the planet have been waiting. I think sometimes women, we just spend our lives waiting, waiting, waiting for this miraculous thing to occur where men are going to wake up and finally get our pain and get our suffering and get how much we have been through as a result of their actions. And my dear friend, um, Monique Wilson is here. She's the director of One Billion Rising and she lives in Manila. And Last week, she was with the Comfort Women. Um, the Comfort Women are women from all over Asia who were taken by the Japanese government during World War II and held in rape camps where women between the ages of 12 and 30 were raped up to 50 times a day. Those women are now in their 90s, and there's very few of them left. Many have died, but the ones who are left have been waiting 70 years for their apology. 70 years. They have gone to vigils every Thursday, and all they want is an apology. And I can literally pinpoint women on every country, on every continent who are waiting for that apology. I think my life has been waiting, dreaming of the reckoning, dreaming of the purging, dreaming of the accounting, of the connection, the intimacy that only an apology can bring. Writing this book was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I had to enter the wound. I had, as Cornell West brilliantly describes, I had to make a courageous, creative, unflinching look at catastrophe. But I want to say something about the wound. You know, a few nights ago, I woke up and in the middle, like my third eye, I had this really wild image and it was like a mandala. And inside the mandala, there was another circle. And inside that circle, there was a portal. And I realized it's the wound. 
And what I realized is that inside the wound, there is a portal. And if you are willing to go into the wound, you come out the other side. Most of us come up to the wound and we park our bicycles or horses or carts or cars right outside the wound. So we just sit in the suffering. This book told me, go into the wound because on the other side, there is freedom. Um, and I have to say, um, this book allowed me to remake myself and my idea of myself and break the vice of my lifelong identity, which is being a victim to my father's perpetrator. I feel I was in that frame, in that paradigm. Everything about my life was determined by that frame. What I wrote, what I did, how I moved, my activism. And it's so amazing um, having entered his pain, having entered his childhood, having gone back and seen all the steps that made him the person he was. Because I think every survivor is haunted by why. Why would my best friend drug me and rape me? Why would a person just shoot me because I'm a black person? Why would my father want to kill his daughter? And as I went back and I painted my father in more diverse and intricate colors and entered his pain, I began to see that he had gone through a process of acculturation into toxic masculinity that had transformed him from this tender, open, wondrous boy into an adored boy, an adored boy. But being adored does not mean being loved. There's a very big difference between adoration and love. Adoration is a projection of someone's need and ideal for you, and they put you on a pedestal, and you have to be that person. So it's not loving your humanness or your messiness or your tenderness or your brokenness. So my father became this person he was supposed to be, but all those feelings, all those tenderness, all those vulnerability, all those parts of him, he had to bury and push down and push down. And eventually they metastasized into what he calls in the book, the shadow man. And that surfaced at my birth because he felt such overwhelming love and tenderness for me. He didn't know how to deal with it. He had never been tender to himself. He had never been allowed to express tenderness. He was never allowed to be tender. So when he saw me and it overwhelmed him, he didn't know what to do with it. He didn't know, like looking at a beautiful tree or beautiful setting or beautiful horizon, when you get overwhelmed, you can just sit and weep because it makes you feel amazing. Or it makes you, he had to do something to it, to stop it, to kill it, to rape it, to have it, to exploit it. And I think what I learned is if we don't teach boys how to be in their tenderness, how to be in their humanity, to be in their hearts, then we kill off their hearts and we separate them. And then they're capable of lying on top an 18-year-old girl and raping her even though she's screaming no, 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 because they're not feeling the feelings that she's feeling because they've cut off their hearts. I came to the startling realization um, that my father was a part of me. And, and somebody asked me, how did you write this book? And sometimes I, the truth of the matter is I'm not sure I did write this book. I think my father wrote this book. And I kind of went into a trance state for four solid months. I did nothing else, hardly ate. And my father really came through me. And what I realized is, is that all of us survivors carry our perpetrators inside us. When a person rapes you or violates you or beats you, they enter you. They're a part of you. And whether we're conscious of it or not, we're in dialogue with those perpetrators our whole life. But what I also realized is we can shift who the perpetrator is inside us. We can move them from a monolithic monster to an apologist, from a terrifying, unbearable entity to a broken, needy, vulnerable human being. And I have to tell you that by doing that, 
by moving him there, by allowing myself to know the whys, by receiving the apology I needed, for the first time in my life, I can honestly say I'm free. And I, you know, it's been seven months, well, six months since I finished the book. God knows if he'll come back, but he's gone. He's gone. And there is something to this idea that we have this ability to take agency over these beings that live inside of us and to move them in another direction. I realize, of course, that even the apology and wanting an apology and believing in apology is a tall order. It would probably mean at least the very remaking of human consciousness. It would mean becoming vulnerable and lost and risking that the exploration and expurgation could potentially mean a radical change of identity and position. But it could also mean is being involved in a process which has the possibility of bringing us into a time where the tyranny of misogyny, which has robbed men of their hearts, tenderness, and humanity, is transformed into a time of equality, peace, loving connection between men and women. Our imagination is our most powerful weapon. We can conjure the dead, and believe me, the dead are all around us all the time. I learned this in this book. And they need us to be in dialogue with them. They need us to because many need to get free. We can rewrite their stories. We can make them see us as they have never seen us. We can get them to reveal themselves and see themselves, and we can transform the underlying narrative that has caught us in a cycle of violence, punishment, and more violence. I often ask myself, and I'm sure we all do this, particularly in the times that we are living in, what am I doing here on this earth? <laughs> and my answer is very simple. I am here to get free free of my rancor, free of my pain, free of racism and reversing the legacy I carry as a white person, free of prejudice and unkindness, free of self-loathing, free of my desire to hurt, free to live in my body, free of jealousy, of not feeling like enough, free of comparison, free to be my authentic full self, free to serve that which is divine, because only then can I manifest my real purpose and our real purpose, and I think our only purpose here in this world, which is to love. And I don't mean a sentimental, touchy-feeling kind of love. I mean a fierce love, a love born in the alchemy of the wound, of the shadow, of the shamanic fire, of the true and radiant apology. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to take questions, right? Eve, this this is not quite. On. It's on. Is it on? Uh, I'm not here to ask a question. I'm simply to say, it's an honor to see you again. Thank you. And uh, hmm. take your Berlinda time. Belinda Stackhouse hmm. and Susan Lampert. We love you. Thank you. Linda's not with us anymore. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But we've loved you for a long time. I've got to come hug you. It's my heart. We were amazingly, we had we were part of a big movement many years ago um, called Can Do, which was Chelsea against Nuclear Destruction United, and we marched and we protested for years and years in Chelsea, and it's so great to see you. Really wonderful. Any questions, thoughts, feelings, responses? Yes. OK. 
Can you go to the microphone? Do I? What were your feelings at his funeral? Oh, good question. My father didn't have a funeral. Um, my father didn't even let me know he was dying. And my father didn't believe in memorials because he didn't feel, he thought they were um, idiotic and that they just, um, and he didn't really want anyone mourning him. Um, so I never had a, a grieving process because that's another thing he denied us upon leaving this world. So um, I, I, there's a scene in the book where um, after my father died, I guess I found out a few days later that he had died. And I went to where my parents lived in Florida and it was so weird because no one had let me know he was dying. No one gave me any ability to make closure or have a connection to him. And I hadn't spoken to him for years. And I just found myself in his closet on the floor smelling his soft um, yellow cashmere sweater. And I don't even know why I was doing it. I was just trying to find a way to separate and to have closure. And I thought to myself, even in the end, he didn't allow us to, to mourn. He didn't, allowing people to mourn is an act of generosity. You know, it's a way of people grieving. And um, I think that was one of the more painful things, you know. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, go ahead. That was really powerful. Thank you. And did you have any siblings to accompany you in this journey somehow, or were you all alone? I had siblings. I don't really talk about them because I feel they're alive and it's their story. But I will say that my father, um, my father was, I, I can't help but make the comparisons to where we are politically right now. My father had a way of, of delegitimizing everyone, right, and demeaning everyone, and degrading everyone, and dividing everyone. So nobody could be anybody's ally. And often people allied this, themselves with him for terror of being destroyed. And so I never felt I had any allies in my family. And um, I think that's one of the things I most resent. And, and, you know, and, and although I don't have those resentments anymore since the book, but I, I, I have felt very sad. And I see it happening in this country, how through um, the, the very um, sickly leadership, we are all being told somebody is worse than we are and somebody is better than we are, but it changes every day. So we're all being divided and we're fighting each other and we're against each other rather than understanding there's one perpetrator who is inflicting this violence on all of us. And that's, that's the, um, I guess, the sophistication and cleverness of the perpetrator, right? To make everybody feel so terrible and to feed into everybody's already low self-esteem because most of us came from families where we don't feel that good about ourselves. So the, 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 the bad leader really plugs into that and escalates that so everybody begins to be separated. And I just want to say right now, we're in a very traumatized country in every direction. And we need to all be sitting next to each other and putting our hands on each other and saying, I am with you. I'm with you. I'm not going to let this one person and all of his poison make me a different kind of person than I am. So thank you. Um, do you have any plan or desire to write about um, the mother-daughter relationship and how you were able to come to a point of understanding with her? I, I really kind of addressed it when I wrote In the Body of the World. Mm -hmm. 
And and it, it was a really interesting experience because when I had stage three, four cancer, and by the way, I'm totally healthy. I've been fine for nine years, which I'm really happy about. Um, when I did the play Off-Broadway last year, um, many, many shows a week, it was really grueling. But every night I had to um, be with my mother as she was dying. And it was an amazing experience because, again, I feel like the dead are really with us. And every night I would sit with my mother and I would go through the scene with her, which I did the last time I saw her when she was dying of cancer and I was in chemo and I was bald and we were in this bed and I was holding my mother. And um, it was a very, very, very painful scene where she woke up in the middle and in, in, in the freezing cold and she's had I, had I had a dream I had a dream they had come to take our hearts and they didn't want mine they wanted yours the most of all oh my god they're coming to get our hearts and I just said to her they won't get your heart I promise you and every night that I did that scene I got closer and closer and closer to my mother and I by the last night I just felt like we're done we're done We've we worked this out over these months and months and months of the scene. And 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 so I don't really, I don't think I'm going to write about my family anymore. You know, I, you know, I feel like, I feel like, I know this sounds strange, but I feel like I'm in a new paradigm. I wake up every day and I go, who am I? Like that, that thing of being in this story with my father was so the frame of my life. And now I'm like, I want to write about sex and I want to write about trees and I, I, I just feel like whatever's coming in is so different and um, I feel like well, I've taken care of that. <laughs> so thank you. Hi Eve. Hi. My name is Melissa. I haven't seen you in person since about 2001 in Kosovo where we had oh a, my god vagina monologue yes. presentation and you came yes you I, gave me this necklace oh my god um and I'm just so delighted to see your work I've been following your work from a distance for some years and the intersection of art of politics and therapy that you bring together is just incredible. Thank you. Uh, it, it's um, this is an example, like so many other examples that you've made. For example, vagina monologues, the replicable nature of vagina monologues. How many? Forty-eight languages. How many presentations? How many productions of vagina monologues? How many cultures, like the Kosovars, for example, created their own version of mm -hmm. it after mm -hmm. uh, after it was performed in your version in English. Mm -hmm. um, it's huge, the amount of replicability that mm. you bring to this world. So looking at this new work that you have, the Apology, it is an example. It is a methodology. Mm -hmm. It is one that is replicable, just like Vagina Monologues was. So my question for you is how do you suggest that we use this now again at Perfect the intersection question. at the intersection <laughs> of politics mm -hmm. art and therapy mm -hmm. to address the political issues that you've so eloquently raised today. thank you so much for asking the question okay first of all we've started a website called theapologybook.net and activists advocates all kinds of people and anyone here is invited to write in what is an apology and why is it important second of all we're asking people to send in their apologies um, either to um, victims or to themselves from their perpetrators. I'm really excited to say that this is going to become a play and it will be performed by men and it will probably happen in about probably a year from this fall, you know, this fall coming up. But what we're also going to do, which really excites me, is we're going to encourage 
and I don't know if it's, it's this year or, or following year. We're not, the time is uh, uh, is not clear yet. In all the V days that still exist, because there's probably. 800 to 1,000 places that do productions of the vagina monologues every year. We're going to start creating this methodology that people can do over the years in colleges, over the year in colleges and community groups, and then have them perform their apologies for each other. And I just have to say that um, at City of Joy, which is uh, a sanctuary and a revolutionary center in the Congo that we founded. I founded with Dr. Denis McGuege, who just won the Nobel Peace Prize, and Christine Schuler Describer. Um, it's a, a, a sanctuary and a revolutionary center in Bukavu, run by Congolese, owned by Congolese, determined by Congolese. It's one of the most um, holy places I've ever been, and actually one of the most successful um, therapeutic, political, artistic combination models. And two weeks ago, she used this exercise because we have 90 survivors who come for six months at a time to heal, to train, to release their trauma, and to become leaders. And she used this exercise with them. And she said the results were extraordinary, where they wrote letters to themselves from their perpetrators. So we're beginning to just pilot test it in various places. And I believe if we look around, we owe reparations and apologies in a lot of directions. So what would it look like, and this is something I think about, to apply this to racial justice? What would it look like to apply this to the indigenous, and how do we make amends and apologies to the indigenous? How do we look at gender violence and what's happened to trans women and, and gender non-binary women? And how do, we, how do we begin to take this in our communities and say, Let's go through journeys of apologies together. Let's clean up the past because everything that's happening in this country right now is on based on unresolved past needs for apologies. It's not like white supremacy is new here. It's not like sexism is new here. It's been given the conditions to now bubble up to an unfathomable proportion, but we never dealt with it. We've never resolved it. So unless we resolve it, we're going to keep coming back here over and over. So those are some of the suggestions. But if you have other ideas and we're really encouraging this, I'm, I was on a radio show this morning in, in Philadelphia and a woman wrote in that she was doing this with children who have been traumatized. They've been doing these apologies with their perpetrators who incested them and their parents. And I, I'm beginning to learn all these amazing things that are going on around healing and restorative justice. And what we really want the site to be is send enough stuff. Let's build a conversation. Let's create a collaboration of all of us where we really start to see this as our collective responsibility. Thank you. Thank you. I'll come to you after you. Okay. Hi. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I've done a lot of work over the years, and um, it seems like the buzzword right now in order to move forward, in order to be free, is forgiveness. And I would just like your thoughts about forgiveness. Thank you for asking. Um, I'm really suspect of the word forgiveness, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. I think every time it's been used in my life, it's been a threat. It's been like a mandate, mandate. It's like, you will, why don't you just forgive your perpetrator? Why don't you just forgive your father and get over it? Why don't you, why are you spending all this time? Just forgive him, forgive him. Why don't, and to me, 
it, it feels very religious. There's something about it that it feels like you will just forgive somebody. Well, well, first of all, forgiveness to me is not something you can just do, right? I, I would say that I believe much more in the alchemy of the apology, right? When someone truly, deeply, authentically apologizes to you, when someone goes through a process where you know they have done the work on themselves. Um, Jane Fonda wrote this beautiful thing about apologies on, this, on the site, and she said, when you hear a real apology, you know it. And I think it's really true, and I think when that happens, something alchemically happens in your body. You release your rancor, you release your bitterness, you release your hate, you, it's just gone. Now, that is as close as I know to forgiveness. But I can't just forgive. I was told, for, I can't tell you how many survivors I hear in bad therapy to be told, just forgive your survivor. You can't forgive like that. It, 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 it feels like, I know this sounds strange, but it feels like sex with no foreplay. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you have to, you have to there's something that has, that a crucial step has to happen before you can come to a true spiritual releasing. And that's the step we need to make in this society. You know, that's what's being called for now. A tremendous talk. We could go all night, but we do have to go on to the uh, book signing itself. So how about one more round of applause for oh, Eve? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Really. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of the